Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wazolowski, and it's time to talk tech. In this episode, we'll meet Canada's new hero. She's a journalist who also happens to be a burlesque dancer, and when she was harassed online, she and her glitter army sprung into action to fight back against the anonymous troll. She joins us to talk about her experience and why she felt it was so important to take action. And if burlesque isn't sexy enough for you, we'll also be talking data deletion. Okay, so maybe this sounds a bit boring, but CDT has a new paper out that makes the case for why companies need to rethink their data practices and why the time has come to delete some of that data. Her stage name is Oxford Kaman. She's a journalist who happens to also do burlesque, something she says taught her that if she is a little brave, great things will happen. And when she posted some photos from a burlesque performance in Yellowknife Canada on Instagram, she received a flood of positive comments, but not all of them were so supportive. One was particularly awful. She was body shamed and told she should kill herself. And unlike so many people who are harassed online, she fought back and refused to cede the internet to a cyber bully. Jessica Davy Quantic, or Oxford Kaman, joins Tech Talk to tell us why she refused to ignore the comments and what has happened since. Welcome, Jessica. Hi. So first, your photo's amazing. Tassel game spot on. Thank you very much. Those are held on with carpet tape, which is surprisingly painful to take off. <laughs> um, good to know if I ever need to put the tassels on, although I'm doubting my skills are up to your level. So you posted your images to Instagram, the ones I just said looked amazing. When did the harassment start? Like right when you posted them? No, this is a funny thing. So uh, I live in Yellowknife and burlesque here is a huge deal. Uh, it happens once a year. It's called the hottest show in town because it sells out in four minutes. And we wow. have five shows. Like, it's not, it's a big deal here. Um, and part of the deal is we have these professionals, and they're for social media, they're for the program. They get put on these, like, really big beer bottles. They're, like, our little souvenir. Um, and so I posted these kind of right after the show had happened. As soon as the show was over, I had posted the ones you're talking about with the tassels. And I did it public in part because I got such a great response from the show. So I was really nervous. It's my first time doing burlesque, and I did a tap dance to Post Modern Jukebox's uh, jazz version of Song Song. And I was really nervous about it, but I got this like amazing response. These screams and the cheers. I got a standing ovation. It was pretty rad. Congratulations. Thank you. And so I thought to myself, I'll post these public. Um, most of my friends and people in Yellowknife, but just because I was off this wave of, okay, this is fine, we can do this. And it was a couple of weeks later, maybe like a week, week and a half, that I just, one afternoon at like 4.30 and on a Tuesday, I got this message on my Instagram that some kid who I don't know had found it and had posted hashtag obesity kills. Wow. So this was an anonymous poster, um, or was, was this not anonymous? This was an account that you could sort? Uh, yeah, it was, it was, no, I put some hashtags, some body positive hashtags on the photo. Okay. Uh, not too many, but like a couple. And I think that's how they found me. So this was somebody who had, it was a private profile, but it did have enough clues to figure out who it was. Okay. Um, it's not somebody I know. It's someone I've never met who has no connection to me or anybody I know. So it's not even a friend of a friend. As far as I can tell, it's somebody who was going through hashtags purposely to troll. So they went out looking for body positivity hashtags in order to tear us down. 
Well, that sounds like a jerk. So a lot of people would just do nothing, would kind of ignore the comment. Um, but you sprung to action, as did, as I think you referred to it, your glitterati. What, what did you guys do? Like, what, what was the response that you had? Well, I have this habit, and it started a few months ago. I have this habit of when I get uh, abusive comments or when I get messages, when I get unsolicited dick pics, which I get way <laughs> more than I want to talk about, I have a habit of just posting them public. Because in my mind, if someone sends you that kind of stuff, usually they are anonymous profiles. And so let's bring it to their house. Let's make them own this. And generally what happens is you do that, and then it goes away. It's often an apology immediately. There's sometimes begging. Um, <laughs> but it goes away. And so that's what I did with this kid. This one comment I posted up being like, let's talk about being a girl meeting it for a second. This guy kind of sucks. There, don't feed the trolls. Right. Well, the morning I woke up, though, and I had dozens of Instagram notifications because this troll had gone away and he found other trolls and they'd come back. And over the course of the evening had spent, had gone back through a year's worth of my photos. Wow. Really hideous comments on all kinds of stuff. And they wasn't just hitting ones of me. It started with the photos of myself and they had um, really misogynistic comments. They were calling me a feminist like it was a bad thing on photos of me from the Women's March. They were making comments on a video I put up of a turkey at Christmas dancing to Fat Bottom Girls because I make turkeys dance every holiday. Um, <laughs> they went through some really awful stuff. And, and in the middle of that, one of the comments was, you should kill yourself and eat your own blubber. And it was a sort of the sense that I should never eat again. I didn't have a right to exist. I'm disgusting. I needed to go away. And that's when everything kind of went down. So I woke up and I was like, this is overwhelming. And before I even could kind of figure out what I wanted to say, um, my glitter army had arrived. And this is the <laughs> great thing about burlesque. Burlesque has introduced me to this community of women who are deeply supportive and are into it and want to make sure we feel safe and protected and it's and we are covered in glitter like legitimately that's a real thing that happened there wasn't even glitter in my act and i'm still finding it all over my house oh like, i hate to admit that i have had glitter experience as well and that is going to be with you for a year at least <laughs> oh no no the bar we do it and we do it at the top night in yellow knife and the top night is permanently imbued with glitter it will never come off uh, <laughs> so we are literally dripping glitter all the time, like we dunked ourselves in molten unicorn. And before I even could think of what I was going to say, these women had shown up and done this. And then it kind of spread. It wasn't just my burlesque friends. It was people I knew in high school. It was friends of friends. It was people I knew when I lived in Qatar. It was all these other people getting together. And they weren't just kind of tearing this person down, although that was happening. They were also making sure to remind me that I was okay, that these photos were great. My That's performance awesome. was awesome and I'm fine, and that was a really cool thing. But then in the middle of this, one of my friends, who's sort of a dark wizard of the internet, messages me and says, hey, um, so I know how to Google, and I found this kid. Do what with it what you will. Um, so she had, on one of the trolls profile, on this point there's about three trolls actively involved, he had his name, and she had gone and found him on Facebook, and then from there we found his dad, and from there we found his dad's work email, and some comments they were saying, we figured out they were teenagers, we figured out what school they went to, and so I crafted an email, a very professional email, to his father and his father's work account and to his headmaster. Um, yeah, and we sent those off. Wow, that's impressive. I mean, it's a, a really good reminder that, you know, online stuff has offline repercussions. And sometimes when you are harassed online, advice I often give people is, you know, take it offline, you know, take it to a place where real action can happen. I mean, it sounds like exactly what you did. How did the, the parents respond? Well, the dad got right back to me. And first of all, I was really conscious of not wanting to dox this kid. And doxing sure. is when you kind of spit on the internet all this personal information and you just sort of 
sprayed on it everywhere. And that's a really negative thing. So what I did was I emailed his dad, I emailed his master and said, listen, this is happening. This is who I think it is. Are you connected to this person? I can send you screen grabs. And they both got back to me and said, please do. Um, and initially the father was very supportive and then it kind of, he doubled down. It was almost, he made this comment about how he really thought nobody's parents would be impressed by this thread as if the reaction of my friends and myself to this bully was equally a problem, um, that we were somehow being mean um, to this, this person, even though they had sought me out to tell me to kill myself. Um, and then because I didn't take screen grabs of everything, it was overwhelming. And so now I've learned something. Screen grab the crap out of absolutely everything <laughs> you can because I only taken a couple of screen grabs. And by the time I realized this was gonna get so big and went back to get pictures of the really offensive posts, they've been taken down because we've reported it to Instagram and Instagram had taken the account down. So I didn't have posts of who had said what exactly. I didn't. Sure. I wasn't sure who had said what. And so his dad was sort of saying, you know, you should keep your Instagram private if you don't want this kind of comment. On the other hand, the school took it very seriously. And this was, you said something about online behavior having real world percussions. Well, the thing is, if you're bullied online, that has a real world percussion, repercussion for you. So I'm gonna say that again. The thing is, if you're bullied online, that has real world repercussions for you. You, it, you have to live with it. It's in your head like a horrible mind ninja. Um, I'm 32 years old, actually, today. And Happy birthday. Back, thank you. It's still in the back of my mind that, oh, God, if I perform at the Ice Castle in March, people are going to laugh at me. People are going to call me a land whale because that's what I've been seeing on the Internet. And so for me, why do we let that happen? Why do we say the only person who gets a real-world repercussion from this is the person being bullied? And more importantly, this is a teenager who's doing it. He's 15. He is doing this to other people. What if he did this to a 15-year-old girl? That's right. something the school needs to know about. Because those kind of repercussions are not just going to be a moment of pause of, am I going to get my boobs out again and whirl them around? It's going to be, if I was less secure, if I was younger, it's going to be, I might actually kill myself, or I might yeah. actually hurt myself, yeah. or it's going to change how I do my life. And so that's what we contacted the school, and they were really great. They came back and said, we're going to have an investigation, which they did, and they found it was three boys involved. Um, who they then suspended, and they took their phones off them, and all the accounts have been deleted, and the school is taking it very, very seriously, which I really appreciate. Yeah, a couple so of points you, you made there. Oh, sorry to interrupt, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, it wasn't quite the end of it, because in the middle of this, I knew that the boys, something had definitely been, there had been a repercussion, because I started getting threatening emails. So I got a couple of emails from somebody threatening to dox me. Um, because I'd done this. And the point they were making was because I didn't have quantifiable proof of absolutely everything that was said, because I didn't have that death threat or that the, the plea to kill myself in a photo that I could show them that everything I said was a lie. And the extension of this was that if that was the only thing that was so offensive and everything else they said was fine because I couldn't prove every single comment from every single account, then clearly I was a liar. Um, and that to me was really troubling, the idea that we're going to put the onus on somebody who had yeah. their entire Instagram blown up with abuse to prove it. And that's just something very awful about the mindset of that person um, and, and the, kind of where we're going as a culture that says they feel confident that anonymously they can go back to the different media outlets who pick this up and accuse me of lying, and they believe that. Yeah. On, their, on an anonymous note, I, whatever I said, whatever a woman said, whatever the victim said, wouldn't matter. 
And that's interesting to me on a bigger global scale. Anyway, what was your question? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I wanted to go back to a couple of points you made because I thought they were really important as well in terms of kind of broader things we could take away from this. Um, one, I was very, very impressed, you know, in, in, in fighting back, you made a point, I think it was in one of the stories um, that I read about you online, uh, where you said that you didn't just want to cede the internet to bullies. And of course, you know, here at CDT, we, we have this belief that the internet can do good and, and will do good. We may not be there yet, but it can. And I think, you know, if really, you know, you made the point that just make your, your account private, but in doing so, you're kind of removing a perspective of you, you're limiting the internet for you and for your friends, that just seems terrible. So I really love that point about not just ceding the internet to bullies. Um, and also your point about, you know, if this were a 15 year old, a teenager that was being harassed and they didn't have a glitter army or the glitterati to support them, um, that could be a very different outcome. Do you have any um, any lessons or advice that you took from this experience that you'd want to give to someone uh, if they are bullied online? Yeah, just to remind yourself, like you said, this isn't how it has to be. I think, um, now I did read some of the comments and then I realized it was really bad for my mental health. So when this started going around, there's been a lot of comments and most of them have been incredibly supportive. And I've had so many private messages from people saying this made them feel better, saying this made them feel stronger and supporting me. And yeah, I've had lots of trolls, but I've also had a lot of people kind of going, oh, you know, the world is a mean place, the internet's a mean place, like it or get off. It doesn't have to be that way. We get to decide what kind of world we live in. We get to decide how, what standard behavior is acceptable on the internet. I am a proponent of free speech. I think the internet is wonderful for its opening up of information, for its opening up of discourse. At the same time, if all we do is if all the decent people block, delete, and make their accounts private, what we're doing is we're saying that the trolls of the world, the pepes of the world, get to run it and they get to, that they've won. What we've told them, and here's my issue too, if you don't say anything about it, so I have advice, if you are being bullied, I think you need to understand it's not about you, it's about them, this is about power. For me, I was attacked for my, I was my burlesque photos, and I think what it was doing was it was saying, I wasn't gonna play this game that says I am not allowed to like myself, that I have to get someone else's permission to not hate myself. Um, being a bigger body in our culture and not actively hating myself is an act of resistance. And what that does is it shifts the power balance. It's saying to somebody else that maybe they don't get to control someone else's behavior, they don't get to set the terms, and that's really scary for them. So it wasn't even about me. I would have gotten these comments if I was skinny, if I was fat, if I was tall, if I was short. It didn't yeah. matter. So that's the number one if you're being bullied. It actually isn't about you, it's about them. Number two, I also have this thing, if you're seeing it happen, the amazing thing about my glitter army was that they supported me. They came and told me I was okay, and that's what we need. Because if you're silent, that helps, that doesn't help the oppressed. It just helps the oppressor. If you're silent, you are tacitly saying this is okay and you're tacitly condoning it. Even though you're saying, you know what, I don't want to get engaged with this. It's how the internet is. It's awful. Trolls will be trolls. Boys will be boys. I'm just going to go away from it. What you're saying is that you agree with it. By not disagreeing actively, you are condoning it. And so I think we have a responsibility as adults, particularly, and as forward thinking adults, as people who like things like equality to actively make a point of going out and drowning this stuff out with glitter. You just need to, yeah, like delusion. I love that, yeah. wonderful goodness and happiness. And that's possible. It does happen. And I think, wouldn't it be amazing if, if you're being bullied online, you could hashtag glitter army and a bunch of strangers you don't even know would come down and tell you you're awesome. 
it is much easier to ignore the horrible bad stuff when we're reminded of the good all the time. And I'm reminded of that Mr. Rogers quote about always looking for the helpers. And that's what we need. We need more helpers. And so my biggest advice isn't even to the bully. My biggest advice is to people who stand by and watch it happen. We have to get up and we have to get loud. And I think that goes into for bullying. I feel that way about any political issue. We're in a very scary time. I'm north of the border, and we're still in a very scary political time. <laughs> we have to start saying what we want, not just being silent on what we don't want. That's a great point. Um, one last thing, uh, just to kind of clarify something. How did um, Instagram respond? You referenced it a bit, but were you happy with their response? Well, I cracked the Instagram code, you see. So if you just, if you just report it, you got nothing. You might have a couple of days. I know when I reported a few abusive accounts on Twitter, it took 48 hours before they shut them down, before mm-hmm. they got rid of them. And that's a problem because in 48 hours, this person can do a whole heck of a lot of damage. Instagram, if you repost and tag Instagram, it, it's gone within minutes. Um, oh, I did have some troll create a whole account to fat shame me and like all of that. And I reported it within, I think, 10 minutes, it was gone. But again, this is a thing in order to force Instagram to pay attention, you have to be willing own this and there's a lot of shame attached to that i think admitting you're bullied is a really hard thing because you're secretly worried like what if people agree with it what if other people side with the bullies it it just never occurred to them that i'm fat and maybe now that the troll has pointed it out um and so it's a hard thing to do but if you can that's the trick and i think it's not just kind of shaming the bully and making them own it because again nobody goes home at the end of the day and sits around the dinner table and gets asked, you know, what did you do today, honey? Well, today I told someone to kill themselves on the internet. Pass the peas, please. Like, that doesn't happen. So we have to make them own it, but we also have to make these platforms own it. Because these platforms are not consistently enforcing their, their rules. Um, I look again at the great nipple gate, so that the female nipple may never, ever, ever be on Instagram, but boys can have them every which way. I look at something that happened with an Inuit throat singer up here in the north recently, that she posted a picture of a seal skin parka with a hashtag suckpita. Um, and she, she had her whole Facebook account taken down and had to have it reinstated. Oh um, you and, and your seals the up there in Canada, I tell you, you have something against seals. What is that, Jessica? <laughs> Just kidding. No, I love seals. Seals are the best, but they're super warm and they're delicious. <laughs> I live in the Arctic. It's Fair minus enough. 50 here pretty regularly. I would like to wear a seal if I could. Um, <laughs> so my point in here is that it's not just about seals, although, yes. Um, my point is that just as we have to make the trolls own it, we have to make these platforms own it. Um, because I think, again, they are tacitly condoning this behavior and this kind of action and this kind of thought. And it's a very slippery slope. It starts with fat shaming, and before you know it, we have people who run Breitbart in calls of power. And these are issues we need to talk about. It's not alternative facts. <laughs> it's actual reality. Well, this is, this is, this is our reality here in D.C., Well, Jessica, this is some incredibly empowering advice that I hope people will heed and listen to. Um, You know, I'm going to cut you off there, but when when are we going to see Oxford come on again? If people wanted to come to Yellowknife, is is she making another appearance? Oh gosh, yes. So Oscar Come On will hopefully be dancing at the Ice Castle because we build that every year. (laughs) The Snow King builds the Ice Castle on Great Slave Lake out of ice made from Great Slave Lake and for the whole month of March is a big festival there. So I will hopefully, if they can manage a way to let me tap on ice, I will be dancing there. Followed by I will probably be hopefully dancing at Queerlesque in the summertime, Burlesque's gayer cousin. And next year for sure, if they'll have me back, I will definitely be coming back to the Burlesque stage in Yellowknife. That is fantastic. So we got some good promos in there for Yellowknife. Jessica, <laughs> thank you so much for joining Tech Talk. You totally rock and appreciate having you on as a guest. 
thank you so much. Should it stay or should it go now? If it stays, there might be trouble. Okay, so perhaps that was a bit lame, but the issue of data deletion for companies is not, even if it's not necessarily the most appealing topic for them. CDT has just released a new paper on data deletion, and in it makes the case that companies should embrace the practice in some instances, especially as the costs of retaining the data start to weigh the potential benefits of keeping it. Joining us to talk about the paper is our first-time guest, but long-time listener, our very own, Joe, very own Joe Jerome. Welcome, Joe. Super excited to be here. Yeah, I mean, Joe, when he started at CDT, told me he loved the podcast. Actually, that's why we hired him, because in the interview process, he said he loved the podcast. Not true. It's, it's because he's brilliant. It's also the best way to know what everybody else in the organization is working on. That's a good point. There we go. So data deletion. This is a topic that probably most companies don't want to talk about. But why do we think it's important? Well, so A, I think you'd be surprised. I think a lot of companies actually do want to talk about this, but they want to do it at something like a 10,000 foot level. Okay. <laughs> um, like the issue is, the real challenge is that your deletion practices and, and your thinking around deletion, um, it really varies based upon your business model and what type of information you're collecting. Um, this is something that a lot of companies are having a lot of trouble with. Um, we've we had no shortage of conversations with companies that have these sorts of things, and then you try and get them to go on the record or say, or say what they're doing, and they get really sort of squeamish because there's a lot of complexity from a technical level and then just a lot of legal and policy complexity. Um, I, I guess I should say that this effort sort of emerged out of work that CET was doing last year with Fitbit um, around ethical R&D. Um, and you know the wearable giant that they were also interested in what they should be doing around all the information they collect and you can sort of imagine that you know they're collecting health data they're collecting consumer data and then you know as a company they're just collecting a lot of information in the course of their day-to-day -day business practices um, so I, I guess and, and I, 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 I suppose the reason deletion is really important and, and hopefully I don't get in trouble for saying this in a digital the digital world we live in um, the fact of the matter is not all information is worth keeping. And I, I guess I sort of wanted to give a, a quick little anecdote that sure. didn't get into the paper. Um, so the National Archives and Record Administration, which gathers all of the information from the federal government, um, if you think about all of the information that the federal government collects and it or creates, its agencies, um, this is millions, billions of different documents. Um, and of all of those documents, of all of that material, it really only saves one to three percent. One to three percent is all of the information that ever gets stored permanently with the archives. Um, you know, and I, you know, for a long time, uh, this was just a matter of space. You have to put the information somewhere. You're going to have Indiana Jones-esque like, <laughs> like storage facilities full of things. Um, and now we live in a digital space where everybody can collect and save everything. Um, and so deletion is just important, not because I think there, and I think if you read our paper, there aren't right or wrong answers here, but it's just really important to be thinking about. So in the era of you know big data, which you, you can't help but think about that term big data when you hear this, you know I'm sure a lot of the arguments are the ones that we've all heard before. Well, it might be useful someday. Right. Is that the primary reason that so many companies want to hang on to data, that, or are there other reasons that, that you know they just hang on? That's to obviously the big. That's the big reason. Um, the maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there's plenty of other things. Um, so one of the issue is, and this is sort of interesting as a lawyer, is there's actually a lot of legal incentives to keep information. Um, uh, 
So, you know, if you think about it, a lot of compliance activities nowadays require you to have records of X, Y, and Z. Sure. Um, and, and so that sort of just incentivizes companies to keep things forever and ever and ever. Um, it's also, frankly, uh, sort of hinted this at the top, in our digital world, it's cheaper and easier to just collect everything. Um, you know, I, this is, I hope not too folksy, but I think about it, sort of when I was a kid, um, you know, all of my book reports were on paper. You know, I wrote them down. Um, at the end of the year, my parents only let me keep the ones I was most proud of. Everything else got thrown away. Now, you think about just our day-to-day -day work product. I keep 100 different drafts of a blog post I created at CDT. Um, similarly, you see this at companies. Everything gets kept. Um, there's just no real incentive to get rid of anything. Yeah, that's a good point. So why don't you well, make the, the case for why they should do it? I mean, that, that's what the paper attempts to do. Why should companies really implement strong data deletion policies and practices? So I come at this, and, and I, I have to say this was a team effort. Um, Vijay and Michelle did a lot of work on this paper. They're also on our privacy team. Um, and I think we all came at this from slightly different perspectives. I come at it from a lawyer, I'm a lawyer, so I come at it from a legal perspective. And at the same time as laws have sort of encouraged companies to keep information, law also creates a lot of risks and costs. Um, one, of the, one of the real concerns that came up over and over again with companies um, is just sort of e-discovery costs. Um, there was a RAND study that sort of suggested that the average cost to collect, process, and review one gigabyte of information is $18,000. Wow. Um, most companies, as you imagine, have more than, have many, many gigabytes of data. And if you get involved in litigation, you're going to have to produce that. The lawyers are going to have to look at it in six minute increments. Um, so that's really problematic. Then, and this is probably more familiar to, to listeners of the podcast, there is the, uh, you know, the world of data breaches, data security. Um, you can't lose, as the FTC has, has said many, many times, you can't lose what you don't have. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, an example that we sort of highlight in an addendum to the report is, is the infamous Ashley Madison case now, um, where you know, this was a company that had many, many problems, um, but they actually you know, promoted the fact that they had a deletion service. Um, and that you know, if you wanted to get your information out, you could. And then they actually didn't back that up with um, policies and technologies to actually get rid of the data. Um, that that's really problematic. Um, I think unfortunately we sort of live in this universe where again everybody's been incentivized to collect everything that not enough thought is going into deletion. Um, a more recent example of this that's really interesting and just sort of shows the oversight that can exist um, is if Uber. Uber got in a lot of trouble um, for, uh, um, you know, during, after the, the uh, Trump administration's Muslim ban, there was, um, there was a transit strike, and there was a suggestion that Uber was breaking that strike. Um, you, you, we can argue about that, but it created this hashtag delete Uber moment that got people deleting their Uber app, um, which is with, you know, for better or worse, is, should be within the rights of, of a user. Um, when people tried to go ahead and delete the Uber app, they found that there was no automated process for doing this. And in fact, Uber had to manually go in and to have someone delete wow. their accounts. Yeah. That, you know, <laughs> I can understand why Uber would not want its users to be easy, able to easily delete things. I can understand why, you know, it's a wonderful service. Why would anyone ever want to delete your Uber app? But when the day comes that people want to leave and people like expect their information to be gone, um, Uber found itself unable to do that easily.
So are there different ways to delete? I mean, you kind of started to touch on it there. You know, can anything ever really be deleted, deleted? You know, and this whole, like, there's third parties with access. You authorize this thing. Right. Is it easy to delete? I mean, if one company deletes data, is it really gone? Or No, no, and that's part of the challenge. I mean, again, I, I think I, I feel like we should make one thing clear, and I, hopefully you don't get yelled at for saying this. But <laughs> I so, won't yell at you. Oh, well, I'm saying, I'm saying <laughs> so read, viewers of this, or listeners to this podcast, when they're trying to delete it, once they've listened to this wonderful, back and forth between you and I, they have to understand that that information has not been removed. Um, it's simply been de-indexed. You know, when you're emptying your trash can on your desktop computer, that information hasn't been deleted. It still very much exists um, on your computer. And as a fact, like it's actually gotten much, much easier to get that information back. Um, there's sort of um, documentation from the Department of Education's privacy technical assistance center um, that's sort of just warning that modern data storage technologies are incredibly resilient and the ability to get information back um, is, is is much, much easier. Um, so, you know, how do you ultimately get rid of, of information? Well, it, in our paper, we go through a couple of different methods. There's, you know, what's called soft deletion where you're de-indexing de files. Um, that's not really deleting the data. Um, alternatively, you can do uh, overwriting, which tends to be the, the general process of, of it, it, think about it in terms of, um, you know, you have a white wall, you paint it red. Um, to get it back to white, you're going to paint white layers over and over again. Um, so overwriting is a, is a general practice that I think anybody involved in the data deletion game, if you will, is aware of. Um, but then you get into what sort of overwriting is good enough. Um, one, there's, there's many different methods and algorithms that are deployed to you know, overwrite your data with a certain combination of ones and zeros. Uh, the, the Gutman method, for example, overwrites information 35 times. Wow. Um, that's, <laughs> Seems that, like a lot to that, me. It, it, yeah, it, it is a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of argument about whether that's a, you know, whether at that point, you know, you've gone above and beyond. Um, there's questions about, however, if you're overwriting just once or just twice, is that good enough? Um, but the more, you know, obviously the more times you overwrite, the more effective it is. Um, but you're adding costs and time sure. and the ability to actually get rid of this stuff. Um, another obviously op option is to just destroy something. You know, you can, you can um, it, it's tough, but you can, you know, destroy your hard drives. Um, one thing that we talk about in the paper and an idea that, that I, I think we should, or people and people should be promoting um, is the notion of deletion by encryption. Um, that is, you know, you should offer your users and companies should get, as a matter of course, be deleting their information, or sorry, not deleting their information. Yes, they should be deleting their information, <laughs> but encrypting their data and then throwing away the key. Um, th there are some policy questions around this, but as a matter of just better than nothing, deletion by encryption is a great idea. Okay, so you touched on this a little bit, um, your recommendations, you got to them there. If you were to, you know, put your lawyer hat back on and advise a company, you had multiple recommendations in the report. What are like the top one or two that you're like, you must do this, companies? We, we, we don't have time to go through all of them. No. Uh, so <laughs> They're fascinating, though. Everyone should read the paper. Uh, please do. So I guess our, our top one is, and, and this, and I always was afraid that this is maybe too simple of a suggestion, is basic auditing. Auditing is really, really important. And in, in some respects, I think... Uh, Good data deletion practice is, in many respects, like spring cleaning. Um, what we would love to see, and and frankly, what we've heard um, some internally from some companies, how they go about this is um, try and categorize and inventory your information, and then when you have a data set, um, try and figure out, try and ask yourself, a, what's the value to this data set? 
if your only answer is, well, there's a hypothetical use case, there's a potential value, big data, yay, um, <laughs> that's not really concrete. And that sort of suggests that maybe you don't need to keep that. Um, you know, if all you have is a big what if, maybe the information really isn't that valuable. Um, alternatively, what we thought, what people repeatedly suggest was an interesting idea is simply evaluate how long it's been since your information's been accessed. Um, if you haven't looked at certain data sets for a certain period of time, that's also suggests it's not valuable. Um, I, I, I do that with my clothes. If I haven't worn it hey, for a certain right. amount of time, that stuff is gone. Now, but, so, do you, but do you do that with your emails? Do you do that with it? I do. I, well, not as much as I probably should, but I'll do. I'll be better now. But uh, somewhat, yes. But good point. Um, <laughs> you know, again, encryption, please, pretty please, just do it. Um, internal access controls, and this is both a technical and policy and administrative thing. Um, you know. We talk in the paper about employee training, and everybody talks about employee training. You know, employees everywhere can be the source of data breaches and all sorts of problems. At the same time, we sort of found that there's there's a lot of skepticism, and as a practical matter, I think even like CET, we're a lot of tech-minded folks. Um, if you if we were to do an internal data deletion training at CET, the amount of things I think people would take away would be pretty minimal. Um, so you really have to think about it from a technical capacity. Um, another idea that was that people suggested was think about having an archivist and explore what your data deletion policy is from from getting a wide range of internal stakeholder input. Um, so you know, not just the lawyers, not just IT. Um, get a lot of people into a room thinking about what data is valuable, and then have an archivist position that actually sort of thinks about this further. And then I guess I would just say, sort of say, finally, um, it's really important to be thinking about this on the front end, not the back end. Um, you know, we think about in the paper and in general, we talk about data lifecycle management and deletion comes at the end of the lifecycle. You're deleting the data. Um, the problem is it's much easier to think about how, why, when, where to delete the information if you're thinking about it at the beginning when you're collecting sure. it. Um, and again, maybe that's maybe that's simple advice, but that's that is advice that came up over and over again in our consultations, and it's something that we hope to sort of inject into the paper. Great. Well, I asked for one or two. You gave me five or six. Well done. I cheated. <laughs> but it's an excellent cheat. The report is available online at cdt.org. Everyone should check it out, especially if you work at a company that has customer data, which if you are a company, I would assume you probably have lots of it at this point. Joe, I hope you enjoyed your first experience on Tech Talk. It we'll was, definitely it have was you a back. real treat. <laughs> Thanks so much, Joe. That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. Definitely check out the data deletion paper at cdt.org. And if you love Tech Talk, tell your friends about it and post some comments on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. I'm Brian Wazalowski. Thanks so much for listening.